This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas on this Christmas week. And we are bringing the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, where you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's a Tuesday, so we're going to get right to questions. And um, we'd love for you to call. I realize people are busy during this week, but we'd appreciate your phone calls. Uh, I'm going to go back to a question that I had yesterday uh, from Dustin Inlano. Um, um, Dustin asked about um, Jeconiah, or he's also known as Jehoiachin, uh, or Coniah. He's got different names he's referred to because of the similarity of names. Uh, and it was a question that was, it, it's, it's a complicated scenario that you've got to go through. And uh, I don't think I did a very good job of answering it. It's something that you really need to sort of organize your thoughts. And um, so, Dustin, I'm going to take another shot at that. Um, just hopefully... Uh, giving you uh, a, a clearer picture. His question was, uh, why? how does that sync with the lineage or the genealogy of Jesus? Because Jesus is from the line of David, and yet of Jeconiah, it said, and I'm going to use that name because it's easier for me than Jehoiachin. Remember, Jehoiachin with an N, his father was Jehoiachim, and it's actually Kim, Jehoiakim, and um, um, uh, they were both really, really horrible uh, kings. Um, of course, Jeconiah, the son, was the, the, the king at the time that Nebuchadnezzar uh, completely took over and destroyed Jerusalem. So uh, here's how um, we can get Jesus from the line of David, and yet Jeconiah, who was... Uh, God swore he he would never have a descendant sit on the throne of Israel. He's wiped out as though he were childless. In fact, in Jeremiah 36, uh, 
Dustin was asking about Jeremiah 22, but in Jeremiah 36 um, of, of Jeconiah's father, uh, the Lord said concerning him that he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. Now, we've got lots of prophecies and if you're not really, really paying attention, they can present a problem. God promised David that his descendants would reign as the Messiah over Israel. Uh, by the time that um, Jehoiakim and uh, Jeconiah, um, that descendant had not yet come, uh, of course, that's Jesus, and here God seems to promise it would be impossible for a descendant to come. If someone was a blood descendant of David through um, Jehoiakim, he could not sit on the throne of Israel and um, um, be the king and the Messiah because of the curse on this line recorded in Jeremiah 22. Um, but if the conqueror was not descended through David, um, he could not be the legal heir of the throne because of the promise made to David and the nature of the royal line. So this is why we have two genealogies. And Dustin, this is the answer to your question. We have two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Matthew recorded the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Um, uh, he begins at Abraham and follows the line down to Jesus through Joseph. Now that's the 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 uh, legal line, the legal right to the throne. Luke, however, recorded the genealogy of Mary. Um, he begins with Jesus and followed the line back up all the way to Adam, starting from um, Mary, who is not mentioned in that particular genealogy. Now, um, Mary Matthew's genealogy includes uh, Jeconiah, but shows only who Jesus' legal father was, not his natural one. We know his natural father was God, the father. Um, that's why Luke traces Jesus' parental line through Nathan, a son of David, and not through Solomon. Let me re recommend a, a commentary for you. Uh, Charles Feinberg, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, uh, and it will it goes into um, tedious detail about this. So, uh, sorry I didn't do a very good job answering this yesterday, but this is one of those um, questions that is so complicated that just to do it off the top of my head, I probably should have just begged off and waited for today. I don't have time to research it while I'm sitting here in front of the radio. Uh, in front of the screen. So I hope that helps, Dustin. Thank you very, very much for calling us today. Here is a question from Danny, our first new one today. It said, um, how could a loving God kill the firstborn of Egypt? Um, Danny, uh, your your question is a little aggressive. Like you don't believe God could be a loving God. But remember, God provided a way out. This is the same question that people ask. How could a loving God send anyone to hell for eternity? Well, God doesn't send anyone to hell. God provided a way out. No human has ever had to go to hell. Now, if we choose to live independent of God, we're going to spend eternity in hell being tormented. Well, in exactly the same way, on this Passover, uh, God provided a way out. He said that if your homes are covered by the blood over the doorpost, if you're covered by the blood, then the angel of death will pass over and the firstborn will be spared. Now, Danny, one thing to remember is that all of the firstborn, Jew and Egyptian in, in Egypt, would have died 
if there was no blood on the doorpost. So God wasn't separating the people, just saying uh, to his people, just you cover the blood, uh, the doorpost with your blood and, and your, your firstborn will be saved. Um, Egypt had a warning. Um, they, they could have spared themselves, uh, but they refused to believe. And the picture here is that unbelief causes death. So my question sort of back at you, Danny, is this one. Did God not prove he was loving by giving Egyptians the same opportunity to avoid the angel of death that he gave the Israelites? Is it unloving for God to allow somebody to choose to go to hell? Should God just override that? When God says that we're all born condemned, that's John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. We're all born condemned, condemned already, and yet he offers a way so that we're rescued from that condemnation. So the truth is, sin gets judged, and when sin gets judged, people die. And when people die apart from Christ, they spend forever and eternity. Well, it was exactly the same in Egypt. Now remember, the Egyptians had the opportunity to cover their doorposts with blood, and they refused to do so because they didn't believe. In fact, throughout all of the plagues of Egypt, not just the last one, throughout all of the plagues of Egypt, Pharaoh acknowledged that Moses' God really was God. And he would give in, he would try to negotiate, then he would change his mind, get filled with wrath again. That's the way the devil works. But he had every opportunity. Every opportunity. And all the firstborn in Egypt perished. As I said at the beginning, Danny, if in fact, there were Jews who didn't believe. If they didn't cover their doorposts with blood, they too would have lost the lives of their firstborn. So, Danny, I think what we need to do is get behind, and, and I don't mean to be insulting here, so don't take this personal. But, but we need to get beyond, if we're going to have reasonable conversations, we need to get beyond the sophomoric questions about how could a loving God do this? Or if God were good, why is there evil? Those are are um, inane questions. The answers are in the word. And we get what we deserve unless, unless we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then we're spared from what we deserve. Here's a question from Kenneth. Moses was faithful. He is in Hebrews chapter 11. Do you think God was harsh by not letting him enter the promised land? Um, no, I don't. You know, Moses said, Jesus gave us a principle, Kenneth. The principle is too much is given, much is required. And I always include another word in there, much more is required. So when, when God gives you a position, Moses, remember, he sat and talked with God like a man would talk face to face. He heard God's voice. He was given great responsibility, great privilege. Well, there is there's accountability that goes along with that. And as God's representative, when he misrepresented God by, by striking the rock, by being angry and sinning in his anger, there was a price to pay. 
Now, let me say this, Kenneth. Remember that Moses did make it into the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration when he and Elijah appeared to Jesus. He did make it there. But it was time for God to move on and do something new, and he did something new through Joshua uh, before God spoke to his people through Moses. But now he said to Joshua, Keep your word. Don't turn to the left or to the right. The word, the word, the word. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Kenneth. Let's go to Robert on line one from San Antonio. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. I would just like to preface by saying uh, I think it's really amazing that you go on every day and, and do this. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, it, must, it must be a labor of love. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there, there can be no other conclusion, but... Uh, uh, and and I, I was uh, wondering what you thought, what some of the believers uh, have been uh, taught over the years, and uh, I, uh, I kind of adhere to it, uh, I, I confess, that uh, when we look at uh, Genesis 49 and when we look at Deuteronomy 33, uh, we look at the current geopolitical scene uh, today and see the United States and perhaps Canada and Mexico as being the uh, Ten Lost Tribes uh, joined together under the banner of Joseph, uh, based on the uh, prophecies of uh, Joseph, uh, of Jacob, and uh, Moshe, Moshe, Mo- uh, Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do, do you have a, a position on that, or have you studied it? Yeah, I, I've, I've looked at it, but, but here's the, the key. And Robert, thank you. That was a very kind thing for you to say. Um, you know, the, 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 the Ten Lost Tribes is, is sort of... Um, fiction. Um, God knows where they are. If you go to the book of Revelation and he's, he's um, um, uh, picking 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, it's clear that there are no lost tribes. God knows where all of the people are. And we've got people who are so trying to connect themselves to uh, these 10 lost tribes that they're really taking leaps of faith. So uh, it, it, is, it is my opinion that, that those of us who are in uh, the Americas, um, uh, there's supposedly a large population from Spain of, of, um, of, of, of uh, I'm, I'm lost my train of thought for the word, but, but Jews or, or, or Gentiles who, who, who've traced their lineage back to uh, the Ten Lost Tribes. Uh, and simply, there, there's no substantiation for it at all. So I, I just do not believe at all that there's any connection. Uh, I've made some people really angry when I said that, well, I know where I come from and I've traced my ancestry. Um, but the truth of the matter is that the ten lost tribes have never been lost. Uh, they were judged when Assyria, uh, the northern tribes were judged when Assyria came in and destroyed uh, the northern kingdom. Uh, but God has always known where they are. Uh, there are constant references to all of the tribes uh, in both testaments, and um, um, God knows where everyone is, and He's going to reassemble them all together. And I don't believe that they're going to come from uh, the Americas uh, at all. And I, I just, I've, I've really struggled to try to find out why people want so badly to believe that they can trace their their ancestry through the ten lost tribes. I, I don't know what the benefit is. 
And a lot of these uh, become Messianic Jews, um, and, and they're, they're waiting for their call. I just don't believe it. I don't see any evidence for it. Um, but um, um, I think it's clear that your opinion is different than mine. Uh, but there's just no way to substantiate it. Robert, thank you very much. I appreciate the very kind words that you say. And by the way, this is a labor of love. I enjoy doing this. We've been doing it now for almost nine years. And um, um, I, I enjoy it. Jennifer says, Pastor Ron, do you believe in one saved, always saved? Jennifer, this is a, one of those questions that comes up quite often on this program. And, and here's the way I always answer it, and I don't mean to be flippant about it at all. I believe if you were ever saved, you were always saved. Uh, we can look at Ephesians chapter 1, where we are given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, God is the guarantor. You can't lose something that God guarantees. You can't lose something that's free and we didn't do anything to deserve. Um, so uh, if you were ever saved, you are always saved. Now, the problem, Jennifer, that we have is we see people all the time who make professions of faith. Uh, they make professions of faith, and yet um, they seem to fade in, fade out, and they eventually end up walking away from the Lord. And, and Jesus explained that twice, in fact. Once when he talked about the, the religious leaders who said, uh, on the day of judgment, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, well, depart from me, for I never knew you. Everybody knows about Jesus, but not everybody knows him. And um, um, he, I think he made that clear also in Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, uh, when he talks about our responsibility as believers is to scatter seed. The seed is the word of God. And then the seed falls on all kinds of different soils. Well, all but one of those soils, we would say, are questionable. Did, did it really take root? It looked like it did, but then it withered away. Others was trampled out by the cares and worries of this world. Weeds choked it out. Um, so the idea is we got a lot of people who think they're saved who really aren't born again. So, Jennifer, here's the thing. That, that I hope this is really comforting to you. When God makes you a promise, that promise can't be broken. He's faithful even when we are faithless. If you are a real believer and you live in sin, your heart breaks. It's pain. David said, my bones waxed away in my body. He, he was struggling. There was just no peace, not a moment's peace when he was trying to hide his sin. That's because he had a heart after God. Well, we who have Christ in us, the hope of glory, when we're living in sin, now we can harden our hearts and we can rebel against God, but the truth of the matter is there's not a moment's peace. And I think a lot of people make an emotional decision for Christ. They will get baptized. Uh, that's another problem. There's a whole bunch of churches that teach you're saved if you're baptized. And, of course, that's simply not a biblical position. So you've got a bunch of people that were baptized as babies who think they're saved, or they're saved because they're part of the Catholic Church, or they're saved because, and you can fill in the blank. When in reality, the only thing that saves us is to be born again. 
And that means, Jennifer, to surrender your heart to God. You know, I hear people say, well, I tried Jesus. It didn't work for me. Well, he didn't or she didn't really try Jesus, if that's the case. Jesus isn't like a piece of clothing you try on. If you don't like it, you take it off. To really meet Jesus, you've got to change. He changes you. That's this whole beautiful doctrine of regeneration. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, again, we change at different speeds. The process of change is called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus every day. Some people um, just are all in right away. Um, other people just, you know, I'm holding back. I don't really trust them. And, and, and they change less quickly. But we all change. And the man or the woman who professes Christ and hasn't changed, I think, Jennifer, is somebody who's really never truly been born again. So I hope that makes some sense. Let's go to line two and talk with Al uh, from San Antonio. Al, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Hi, Al. Good, thank you. Uh, God bless you. Um, Yes, yes. Yes. Um, Just wanted to ask you, um, my dad, he passed away in June of this year, and um, I was trying to get him to to, uh, accept Jesus in his heart all the time, and he had done it about three times in his lifetime, but he never really expressed it. He never really showed it with profession or anything, and he was a very compromised man. But anyways, at the end of his life, uh, he accepted Jesus, but he told me that he was afraid to tell people about it. Mm-hmm. Afraid of their reaction, now. And so one of the neighbors also uh, witnessed to him and told me he had confessed Jesus uh, but yes, but I, I, um, he didn't confess any sins, and he didn't, uh, he didn't, con- he didn't uh, make a public confession. So I don't know if he was saved or not, and I'm always confused about it. Yeah, Al, let me let me do the best I can. I can help you. I think my my dad uh, gave his life to Jesus on his deathbed as well. Uh, he was 84 years old, and he, he'd fallen, uh, and he never. Uh, gave any indication that he had any interest in things of God. In fact, he called me stupid for doing what I did instead of being out there making money. I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and yet, you know, the, the people are praying. You, you you clearly were praying for your father. I was praying for my father. And God brings people in answer to our prayers to that point of desperation. And I always think of the thief on the cross. He, he didn't confess his sins. He just said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he made a statement, I think, that was, was, was a faithful statement when he, he said to his other thief on the cross, this righteous man has done nothing to deserve what's happening to him. We deserve what we're getting. That's, that's a confession. So if your dad would ever say to the Lord, look, I, I lived a miserable life. Just, just, I don't deserve to be saved. But still acknowledges him in those last breaths. Then he's probably going to be in heaven. God, he puts people on their hearts. You know, my dad, I didn't have a great relationship with him, Al. Uh, he was a hard, hard guy. And yet, uh, I never could stop praying for him. 
God had him so in my heart. And, and I think that's what God does in cases like this. Uh, he brings people to that point of desperation. My dad was such a proud man, uh, as it sounds like your dad was when he, he didn't want to tell anybody. Uh, that's like admitting you're wrong. But see, Jesus said we need only a mustard seed of faith, just a little tiny bit of faith. And any little bit of faith is going to be rewarded. So I would expect, Al, that your dad is in heaven, um, not because he deserves to be, um, not because he he sufficiently repented or named his sins, but, but simply um, the thief on the cross gives us that hope that by acknowledging his desperation at the end, you know, we say somebody gets an accent, maybe in the, we, we've been sharing Jesus with them, just as they see that the end is near, they say, Jesus, remember me. And they're going to go to heaven. So, Al, I, I think probably, uh, I, I, think, I think Jesus intentionally, here's a good way of putting it, I think Jesus intentionally sets the bar very, very low. And any little bit of faith is going to be responded to with the gift of salvation. So your, your dad didn't have to do anything to earn it. Um, he didn't have to do it a certain way. Um, he just needed to acknowledge the Lord and his sins privately. Al, I hope that's right. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Remember, Paul is going to be live in studio with me tomorrow on a special Wednesday edition. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from David. Now, David, this doesn't say how old you are. Normally when I get this question, it says I'm eight years old or I'm 10 years old or this doesn't say. So I got to tell you the truth. Here's the question. Do pets go to heaven? David, I hope you're a grown man. No, pets don't go to heaven. Only man is created in the image of God. Only man has the ability to choose been given the free will to choose God. Just like God chooses us, we choose Him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. The second thing it means is that, that we are eternal. We're going to live from the moment we are conceived, we're going to live somewhere forever. That's not said about pets. So no pets aren't going to go to heaven. I know that makes people uncomfortable. Um, Paul and I are dog people. We had the best dog, an evangelist dog. Um, got him at six weeks old, and he lived to be 15 years old. And um, 
I still dream about him. I miss him still. He's been gone now for, well, for 22, three years, 23 years. Uh, and I'd love to believe that he's in heaven. But you know what? The way to look at your pet is that God loves you so much, he gives us these creatures for us to enjoy, to enrich our lives. It's just a demonstration of the, the, the extravagance of God's love. And, you know, I think, David, I, I wake up sometimes almost in tears after dreaming. I have such vivid dreams of our dog. And then I, I just have to remember, God, you love me so much. You gave that dog to me to enjoy, to, to enrich my life. And he really did. Not only did he enrich my life, but God taught me how to be a pastor to the people here at Calvary Chapel. By the way, we had to take care of our dog in the last two years of his life. So no pets do not go to heaven. So David, if you're not a grown man, you can take this. If you're a young boy, just remember that God is so good. He loves you and he gave you a pet. And he probably wants you to have another one. And he's going to bless you with it. So it's just a gift from God. And, you know, when God gives a gift, David, they're really, really good gifts. So hope they didn't break your heart. (laughs) Here's a question from Howard. How can I deal with my fear of the end times? It seems like the whole world is rushing toward the end. Howard, I would suggest that the way to deal with your fear of the end is by being saved. Now, it's impossible for me to understand how somebody who loves Jesus could be afraid, especially consumed by fear of the end. You're right, it does seem like the whole world is rushing toward the end, but that's the way it's supposed to be. That really is the the, the goal. We want Jesus to return. I, I tell our church all the time, people on this radio program all the time, that Jesus is coming back any moment. There's nothing else that has to happen. He could come back, and I believe is likely to come back at any time. But you see, that's sort of the goal of my life. That's that's the, the idea that I could see Jesus face to face. That I could go to that place that Paul said was so wonderful that he didn't have words to describe it. He saw such wonderful things that God didn't permit him to share those things with people here on earth. Well, I want to see that. I want to live in a world where there's no pain and no sorrow and no suffering. I want to live in a world, Howard, where there's no 2020s anymore. And so I don't don't really understand how a believer could be afraid of the end. Now, I I understand being afraid of dying. Instinctively, we're built with this this button that says fight for your life. I mean, that's just something God's put in us. I don't want to die. I want Jesus to come today, but I don't want to die. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm not thrilled at all with the process. But when we talk about the end times for believers, that's the rapture of the church. It's coming. And when we get to see him, that will be 
the most wonderful moment in eternity. And there's no way we should be afraid of this. Now let me get serious, Howard, and I pray that you're listening closely. If I was your pastor and you came to me and told me what you wrote in this question, I would tell you, how are you, I would ask you, how are you certain that you're saved? I would ask you about sin in your life. See, the enemy wants to terrify you. He wants to condemn you. And if you give him an opening, that's exactly what he's going to do. So, Howard, I would ask you, what's the source of this fear? Do you have the security of your salvation? God wants us to be secure in our salvation. Have you been born again? And if the answer, Howard, was, well, I go to church, or I was raised in church, or I try to be good, or I try to do good, uh, I would tell you, then you really, it's a good thing that you're afraid of the end. And then I would introduce you to Jesus. So you want to deal with your fear of the end times, just make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you really do belong to him. Howard, he wants you to be secure. He wants you to be safe. He wants you to know that you're his. And when you do, there is no problem at all with um, the end times. I, I want Jesus to come right now. And if he doesn't, I'm going to keep serving. But seeing Jesus is the reward. Let's go to line one. Tim from Live Oak. Tim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Glad to be able to speak to you again. Uh, the one good thing about going in for overtime is that I don't get to miss this program, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> good. Um, I, I have a great concern for Christians today because of the spiritual leaders out there who are making prophecies about President Trump remaining in office. And my concern is if that does not occur, a great falling away can happen into the church because that would, in a sense, mean they'd be a false prophet. What's your take yes. on that? Yeah, Tim, I'm heartbroken for a different reason. I'm heartbroken that the, 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 the state of Bible teaching in the church is at such a low level that there are the numbers of people who would believe that, first, that there are prophets in the world today, and secondly, that they wouldn't be able to test these false prophecies and, 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 and dismiss them out of hand. And that's really how low the bar is in terms of solid doctrinal Bible teaching in the church today. And I agree with you. Uh, people are going to fall away. Now, it's not the great falling away. There's a great falling away that's going to come uh, before the end. Uh, and I think we've started down that road. But remember, that's not about the United States. That's about just the condition of, of Christianity all over the world. There's going to be a great falling away, a great shaking out. Tim, if you don't mind indulging me for just a second, I said at the beginning of this pandemic, way back in March, that I believed that the Lord had spoken to my heart. Just me, I wasn't saying I was a prophet or anything, but that God was going to be doing some serious shaking out of his church. Not shaking up, just shaking out. Sort of separating the wheat from the chaff 
And and that's exactly what's happened over these um, now nine months uh, since March. Uh, but you are absolutely right. These uh, Every time I pull up YouTube on my screen, uh, there's a bunch of these guys that pop up. And, and the fact that they're so demonstrably false in their prophecies. Remember, the standard for judging or measuring a prophet is 100% accuracy. And these guys, um, oh no, you know, we know in part, then we'll know in full. So so I think this is what God is saying, but it doesn't have to be perfect. They're, they're taking 1 Corinthians um, 13 out of context. So, so I agree, you're going to see a lot of people whose faith is going to be crushed and shame on the false prophets. God will judge them. But also, Tim, we have to, to hold them accountable as well. All they have to do is open their Bibles. Instead of listening to these things, open their Bibles and measure every word. Be Bereans. Look up the, the, the prophecy. See if it's true. And, and we're not at a place in our church culture, unfortunately, where people are testing these words of prophecy. And, and um, you're right, uh, President Trump um, is going to be out of office. Um, I, you know, I, I, I voted conservative, so I, I certainly the, the candidate I wanted to win didn't win. Um, but, but at some point, we've got to face reality. And um, the, the Christians who believe that everything is going to fall apart if Trump leaves office, well, they've got the wrong Messiah. They've got the wrong Messiah, Tim. And uh, I think it's a real tragedy. So, Tim, I hope that uh, helps. But please pray for them. We pray not to get angry, but pray for them because they're really, really um, going to be knocked off their balance. Let's go to line two and talk with Jim from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Oh, thanks, Pastor Ron, for taking the call. Uh, My pleasure. I had a question about, uh, sorry to interrupt you, I had a question about First Peter, where he talks about us having that joy inexpressible and full of glory. And uh, I'm not a real expressive guy, but, you know, I'm a new creature in Christ <laughs> now that I'm a saved man. Uh, I was wondering about how you do that, some practical things about how to practice that consistently. And maybe just talk about joy that should be distinctive of us as Christians. And that You've talked about this before, about people wondering, you know, when they see us in trials and we don't react like they would, you know, it gives us the opportunity to, to share. But it's like, I'm not a real joyful guy, generally speaking, but I do have the joy that God gives me because I'm, I know my eternity is going to be with Him. Yeah. Just share on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I can, Jim. And, and I get a little bit frustrated with people who, who you know they're they're really really joyful and they're really really high all the time and then something a test or trial comes they fall flat on their face. Um, we're not talking joy is not emotional. Um, the Old Testament says Nehemiah in fact says the joy of the Lord is my strength. In His presence, the psalmist writes, is the fullness of joy. So we have this joy and it's inexpressible. And I would even offer to you, Jim, that that that. Being not an emotive person um, makes it even more difficult to express your joy. So I think our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. We call that happiness. Our joy comes from being with Jesus. Now, Peter 
when he wrote that. Remember, he's the one who who was told at, at, at his restoration that he was going to die on a cross. And yet he had this inexpressible joy. He called being with Jesus the goal of his salvation in First Peter. Now, because that's true, and you said you have the joy God has given you, well, the joy that you have is the joy of being secure in Christ, the joy of being able to recognize that, that he's done this for you and, and gratitude naturally flows from it. It doesn't mean uh, necessarily an expressive joy. Now, having said that, it is a joy, the joy of the Lord, this inexpressible joy is a joy that others can see even when it's not emotive. Uh, like you, Jim, I'm not a super emotive guy. I never raise my voice. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm not prone to hyperbole. Um, you know, I, I very rarely say things like awesome. And, you know, I, I'm just not emotive the way some people are. Uh, and yet, I hope, I think it's true that people can see whether we're going through something that's really difficult or something that is um, um, uh, crushing to others, that we still have this security, this sense of, of serenity and confidence in the Lord. And I think that's the kind of joy, the inexpressible joy that Peter is talking about. In fact, that word inexpressible could be uh, translated as uh, a, a, a joy that is difficult to understand. When people would say, well, where, why, why are you joyful? It's hard to explain sometimes. But it's not emotions and it's not um, um, theatrics. It's not goosebumps. It's just this measured sense of security and confidence that I'm with Christ and he's with me. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. And that's a joy that can't be shaken. So, Jim, that's that's my understanding of joy. Uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of people in the church, and I so admire their zeal. And I so admire uh, the fact that they wear their sleeves uh, or their feelings on their sleeves. I've got a lady I'm thinking of right now who sits in the front row during worship. I love her with all of my heart. And, and honestly, Jim, I would pay I'd pay money to watch her worship God. It's that it's that much fun. I got another one that just popped to mind who sits just a, a few rows back, and 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 I, to watch her worship, I'm so envious. Lord, I want goosebumps like that. I want that that genuine, sincere worship. And the Lord just sort of reminds me, you've got it. It's just different. And I think that's one of the beauties of the uniqueness of the body of Christ. It takes all kinds. Um, so I, I, I hope that makes sense to you, Jim. Are you still with me? No, Jim hung up. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that question. I think it's something we need to deal with uh, more frequently. Good question. Greg says, why does Malachi say that Elijah must come before the end? Well, Greg I'm going to answer that the simplest way possible because Elijah must come before the end. Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 5, says, Behold, this is God, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Um, before Jesus returns, and this is not talking about the rapture of the church. This is talking about Revelation chapter 19, that day when Jesus returns and destroys his enemies. Before that day comes, then it's going to be Elijah who appears. Now, we also know from Revelation, there's two witnesses, Elijah. The other one is Moses. And they're going to come and they're going to make a stand during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So if you look at the Great Tribulation, seven-year period, as, as the time of Jacob's trouble, the Great Tribulation, a time when things will be worse than any other time in history, before or since, by the way, um, that's the judgment of God. And we've got Elijah, the forerunner. John the Baptist sort of fulfilled the office or type or picture of Jesus' forerunner in the first coming. But when he comes again, when he establishes his throne, before he establishes his throne in Jerusalem, Elijah is coming again. Now, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up by God. But he's going to come. He will be with Moses. And then the end will come. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Can you hear me, sir? I can hear you fine, Jimmy. Okay. I'm concerned about the vaccine. Say that again. I couldn't hear that last word. About the what? Vaccine. Oh, vaccine. Okay. Yeah. And? I don't want to take it. I don't want to take it. I don't want to take the vaccine. I want to be forced to take it. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, Jimmy, I heard I heard an interesting discussion about this. Um, you know, the federal the federal government can't force us to do anything like that. However, state and local jurisdictions can. I'll tell you something else that we got to consider. Um, there, there are places of employment, places of employment that if you want to work, you got to have a vaccine. So I, I don't know what this is going to shake out, but here's what I would like to address with you, Jimmy. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to take it. There's no mandate biblically that says as a believer you've got to take it. Uh, on the other hand, I believe that this is something rather than just be afraid of it, um, I think this is something that you ought to pray about. Romans 14.23 says, Anything not of faith is sin. I think it is not of faith not to pray and say, okay, Lord, uh, I'm your servant. I want to be here to be able to serve you. I've got a family I want to set a good example for. Um, do you want me to take this vaccine? And I think he will be very direct, very clear with you. I think one day when you're reading the Bible, uh, he'll answer that question. I think one day if you're committed to taking a long walk with him, Jimmy, and praying about it, I think he will meet you and give you an answer. And then you can either take it or not take it with a clear conscience. But I think this is something that we need to prayerfully seek the Lord on and then do as the Spirit leads. Now, for me, um, um, that's exactly what I'm going to do. When when this vaccine is available, 
Um, I want to be available to serve the Lord uh, for as long as I can. And uh, if I have every confidence, Jimmy, that if, if God wants me to take it, if he, if that's going to help me um, serve him with my whole heart for longer, then, then that's what I'm going to do. And that way I won't be afraid of it. I think this is a matter of faith and, and all you need to do is really hear what the Lord's will is for you on this thing. Again, I don't think we can be forced to take it. I think there are circumstances, especially with being able to work. You know, in the very end, uh, and, and the devil has patterns, by the way. At the very end, in the Great Tribulation, people aren't going to be able to buy or sell without taking the mark of the beast. And uh, to to reject the mark of the beast is going to be uh, one of those things where um, we we simply have to to um, um, be strong enough at the end to say no to those who are left behind, and it's going to cost them their lives. Um, this this might be a trial run that that the, the devil has in mind. Uh, let's test their their resolve, um, but. You've got to decide if you're if making a living. The place you work requires you to be vaccinated in order to keep other people safe. Then you've got a choice to make. I think it's better to choose first by seeking God's will and then doing that. But Jimmy, you're free not to do it. There's no biblical mandate that would say you need to do it. I just think it's a, a, a matter of conscience and faith. And what I wouldn't want you to do is um, miss out on um, God's best for you simply because you're afraid. Over and over I tell people, fear is not something that should should motivate the decisions that we make as believers. And Jimmy, I know you well enough to know that you're not a man who walks in fear. So just ask God what he wants you to do and do it. Be obedient. Good question, Jimmy. Thank you very, very much. I think I got how much time? Okay, one more time. Here's one really quick one from Jeffrey. He said, Pastor Ron, do you believe the Antichrist is alive now? Jeffrey, I hope so. And the reason I say I hope so is because that means Jesus is coming very, very soon. The Antichrist is going to be uh, revealed after the rapture of the church. And so not only, Jeffrey, do I hope he's alive now, I hope he's old enough now to be an adult so that he can come to power in a moment's notice, because that would simply mean to me that the rapture of the church is at hand. I mean, literally, I know the rapture of the church is imminent, but but um, if if uh, if I knew the Antichrist were, were, say, 30 years old, I'd really be excited, because that would mean the rapture is going to happen at any moment. So I don't know. There's no way we have of knowing that, um, but I'm hopeful that he is. Thank you, Jeffrey. Hey, thanks for the calls and the questions today. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula will be back tomorrow. Remember, not Thursday. Tomorrow will be a revised date day edition of the program because we will not be live on Thursday or Friday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.